This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, director James Fox discusses his explosive documentary, which is being hailed as the most credible and revealing film ever made, about the long-standing global cover-up and mystery involving unidentified aerial phenomena. I honestly felt like I was going to die about seven years into it. I was pushed so hard. The best way I can describe it, it's like being in the ring with a monster and you're just trying to survive the next round. If you enjoy Conspiracy Unlimited, why not become a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member? For just $1.99 per month, you'll gain access to two bonus, exclusive commercial-free episodes per month, plus access to my back catalog of episodes. To subscribe, just go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Gain access to premium episodes. Again, go to conspiracyunlimitedpodcast.com and click on Get Access to Premium Episodes or click on the link in the episode notes. Conspiracy Unlimited Plus for less than $2 per month. Why not sign up today? Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. Great to be with you. World-renowned filmmaker, ufologist James Fox is standing by. James has a brand new documentary out called The Phenomenon, and we'll delve into that in just moments. Director James Fox's explosive documentary, The Phenomenon, is being hailed as the most credible and revealing film ever made about the long-standing global cover-up and mystery involving unidentified aerial phenomenon including shocking, never-before-seen testimony from high-ranking government and military officials, NASA astronauts, and riveting footage. The timely film includes bombshell reveals about UAP incursions at nuclear weapon facilities and the monumental events behind the New York Times 
recent disclosure of UFO videos and the Pentagon's classified UFO program, providing eye-opening evidence that mankind is not alone in the universe. Senator Harry Reid says the phenomenon makes the incredible credible. James Fox began his journalism career in the in life as an assistant to his father, writer Charles Fox, a quadriplegic with multiple sclerosis. Together, they traveled on many magazine assignments, interviewing such notables as Stephen Hawking and race car legend Dan Gurney for the likes of Rolling Stone, Car and Driver, to Sports Illustrated. James finished and sold his first documentary to Discovery by the time he was 28. He's since completed and distributed TV projects for Sci-Fi, TLC, National Geographic, and the History Channel. His films include Out of the Blue, I Know What I Saw, and his latest, The Phenomenon. Welcome, James Fox. How are you? That was a mouthful. i got to meet this guy. (laughs) I finished watching the documentary this afternoon, and it looks like you started filming, or at least some of the interviews were done before 2017, and we'll get into the New York Times article. So when you set out to make this, and I don't know about the exact timing, I'm assuming you started before 2017, based on some of the footage, did you have any idea where this was he- heading in terms of the, the monumental disclosure that, that came about in December 2017? Absolutely none. We were four and a half years in when that story broke on the front page of the New York Times. It's funny, actually, because I actually made three previous films, I say three and a half, because we did a couple of versions of Out of the Blue. And kind of coincidentally, you know, it takes me so long to make a movie, usually four to six years, something inevitably happens, breaks news, UFO sighting, a case, maybe there's an effort for government transparency, something usually happens. And it had, for the last three films I'd made, and I was talking to some of my co-producers, and they said, well, how are you going to end this movie? I said, well, I don't know. You know, probably there's going to be a... Um, a sighting that happens, and maybe we'll go and capture, you know, the witnesses, and we'll see, you know. And uh, I knew something would happen, but I had no idea that there was going to be a secret UFO Pentagon program revealed on the front page of the New York Times. The film begins, he's near the very beginning anyway, there's a kind of a teaser from Christopher Mellon, who is the former Assistant Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, with uh, quite a revealing quote. Tell us a little bit about how you got Christopher Mellon on board and what he has to say. I was probably three to four years into the film when Lee Spiegel uh, got on board. Uh, He wrote for the Huffington Post. I think he was one of the very few journalists paid to write about aerial phenomena. And he came on board and he brought Jacques Vallée on board. And Jacques got, Jacques is sort of the intellectual heavyweight on the topic of UFOs. His character was portrayed in Close Encounters of the Third Kind by Francois Truffaut. And Jacques, about a year and a half in, said, you know, we might want to consider approaching Christopher Mellon. And I thought to myself, well, yeah, I don't know if Christopher Mellon is going to respond to my request, but he might respond to yours. So, of course, Jacques reached out to him. And uh, Christopher Mellon literally said, when Jacques says jump, I respond, how high? What's interesting is the level in terms of the higher-ups and qualified people that are coming forward now. When you have a former assistant deputy secretary for defense intelligence 
coming forward and speaking openly about this, that really indicates that the needle is being pushed forward, wouldn't you say? Well, here's the thing that I've noticed with this production. And, and by the way, it took a village. Victor has been quietly working behind the scenes for... Victor, how long have you been helping me out, sending me information, clips? Over a decade. Oh, easily, yes, for sure. Yeah. He's been wonderful. It's like, you know, I'm like, he sends me this treasure trove of stuff. I'm like, Victor, where did you find this? But, it, but, but honestly, it's taken a, it's taken a village. And, and what I've noticed with the phenomenon for the first time, and I'll remind your audience that this is my fourth film on the topic. I've been doing this for 26 years is that I've never seen the level of interest with mainstream household names to watch the film, but not only that, publicly endorse it. And that I have not seen before at this level. So it's very exciting what's happening right now. How do folks screen the phenomenon, James? Well, there's a number of sites. We list them on our website. If you go to www.thephenomenonfilm.com, thephenomenonfilm.com. If you buy it, make sure you buy it from iTunes or Vimeo because it comes with three hours of bonus material for no extra cost. And, of course, if you rent it, then rent it from wherever. Give people a kind of a sense of how this is structured because, I mean, you do talk about the New York Times article that came out in December 2017, but you also give us kind of a crash course in the suppression of the UFO reality. Just explain a little bit. Well, we were in the studio, and we had this mantra, and our mantra was every day in the edit studio for the better part of four years, we would say, where are we going? And our response was, road to Rua. And what we meant by that, we are going to end the film with a what many consider the most compelling close encounter of the third kind in modern world history. And that is a landing case that happened in Rua, Zimbabwe, at a school called Aerial School in 1994, where roughly 100 school children, 66 of which went on camera, uh, claimed to have seen a landed object, disc-shaped, uh, some claimed multiple objects, and uh, occupants getting out and interacting with the children telepathically. So I knew that no one in their right mind was going to believe this incident happened if we were successful in sort of transcending the UFO community. Because I myself, when I first heard about it, actually, funny enough, through Steven Spielberg back in 1997, when I was just naive enough at the time to think I can get a, uh, an interview with, with Steven Spielberg. And uh, in 1997, he responded through our mutual friend, Janet, hey, uh, I'm not going to let James interview me, but he should know about this landing case that happened in Africa. And that's the first time I heard of it, and I just quickly dismissed it because I said to myself, there's no way that a broad daylight encounter with the sheer volume of eyewitness testimony could occur and not the, and, and not the whole world have heard about it. And so I knew what we were up against if I was going to feel that way. So I had to do a fairly significant snapshot of history to build our case as to the likelihood of, of the event in Rua having taken place. And I think we succeeded. Oh, yes, I'll say. And as we'll discuss uh, later, you, you brought all of those witnesses together again, or some of them anyway, about 20 years later. You spent the first, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes of the film really laying down a lot of the chronology of the modern-day UFO phenomenon. And 
Then you hit us with the incredible, almost unbelievable story of the aerial school UFO incident. And I and I wondered to myself, had you actually led the film off with the aerial school incident, I'm thinking people watching the film might not have even have believed it. Was that your thinking to lay the groundwork first in order to make the aerial UFO school incident perhaps more believable? I knew because of my personal reaction to it, and we cover another landing case that happened at a school in Westall, Australia in 1966. And when I first heard about that case, which there were well over 200 witnesses, again in broad daylight at a school roughly 10 o'clock in the morning during recess, I just found it hard to imagine how an incident of that nature with so many witnesses in broad daylight could, could occur and the whole world not know about it. So I kind of knew what we were up against, and I kind of knew, not like I'm trying to go around prophesizing, getting people to join my cult of believers, because that's not what this is about, but I really wanted to kind of give a snapshot history that, uh, you know, these things are real, they're, they're intelligently controlled, and, uh, and it's a global phenomenon, and, and they are landing, and there are credible reports of witnesses, uh, you know, reporting these, these beings associated with the craft. You mentioned Jacques Vallée, who features prominently in the phenomenon, and there's a, a passage in the in the documentary about uh, Vallée and Dr. J. Allen Hynek from Project Blue Book, both testifying at the United Nations in 1978. I don't want to give too much of the film away here, but there's a very important mention here of a letter that Vallée discovered, I guess, among Dr. J. Allen Hynek's voluminous papers, a letter he says changed his life. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so Dr. Vallée stumbled upon, accidentally, a top-secret letter in Dr. Hynek's files, and I believe it was in the 60s, and he couldn't help himself but to read it. But what it revealed, Project Stork, it was, it was basically a highly funded effort to investigate the phenomenon using all the instruments and tools strategically in high-siding areas uh, to gather data. And it was a highly funded, super-secret program that paralleled Project Blue Book, which basically illustrates the fact that Project Blue Book was more, nothing more than sort of a dog-and-pony show. Right. And, and I believe that this discovery was, if I'm not mistaken, after the Condon report had basically said, enough is enough, we're done studying this. You know, I was so lucky, and again, I have to thank Lee Spiegel, who put on the United Nations event for bringing Jacques on board. But Jacques didn't just, you know, read about this and study these aspects of the phenomenon and, you know, the Condon Report and Project Blue Book and, and Dr. Hynek's Association in connection with, with the Air Force. He actually lived it, you know, and, and uh, so to have him help us put together the pieces of the puzzle in a way that's never been done before was just such a boon to our production. I'll give you another example. Jacques reluctantly kind of initially got involved at sort of arm's length, and he was going to just participate in one aspect of production, and that was covering the Rockefeller Initiative, because he was part of it. And when Jacques got more involved and started to see some of the cases that I had been spending many, many years investigating, one of which was the landing incident in Secor, New Mexico, one of the most well-documented close encounters of the third kind in U.S. history with Officer Lonnie Zamora, Jacques became more and more intimately involved in the edit room, and he would come out 
for the weekends and he'd spend these marathon edit sessions with us. But he told me that he was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in April of 1964, and he was trying to tell Heineck, uh, who was investigating scientific advisor to Project Blue Book, the Air Force, you know, investigatory arm of UFOs, about cases that were explained away as psychological. And he was telling Heineck, look, you've got to pay more closer attention to these cases. These cases are close encounters. They're happening in France. They're happening here in the United States. And he was really trying to get Heineck to take these more seriously. And literally two days after this, meeting at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio, Socorro happened. And so he saw Dr. Heineck go to Socorro, meet the witness, see the evidence on the ground, and he saw sort of this this transformation that happened with Dr. Heineck when it happened back in 1964. I mean, that's sort of the straw that broke the camel's back. I think that case, that Heineck really realized that we were truly dealing with something Use the pun out of this world. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad you included the Socorro, New Mexico incident there, and you did such a wonderful job uh, really putting some meat on them bones because so often I find that case is kind of glossed over, but you talked to Lonnie's partner and you included some rare footage of when they went to investigate the site and we see the imprint from the craft and so forth. You interviewed Lonnie's widow. I thought you did a really nice job linking the Socorro, New Mexico case to the Tic Tac UFO incident of 2004. The craft in both those cases, although separated by over 50 years, were eerily similar. That's a great observation. Very few people catch that. And I actually went as far as to look up when Tic Tacs were invented. And I think it was like a year later. (laughs) Because I was like, well, if Tic Tacs were invented earlier than that, then maybe Lonnie would have said it looked like a Tic Tac (laughs) as opposed to an egg. So, no, it's a very, very interesting observation, and I definitely noticed that as well. The other similarity I I found was uh, there was a photo taken in Arizona that you show in the film two weeks after the Kenneth Arnold sighting. And uh, that also is very similar to a photo taken from, uh, I believe, one of the gunship cameras uh, from the U.S. Nimitz group and uh, in 2004. So, um that's kind of eerie. The other thing that struck me is as you're you're building this this wonderful sort of history, and we you know in the nineteen forty late nineteen forties with uh, United Airlines pilots and um, and and then other sightings, you describe it or they described it in in the newspaper headlines as an armada or a fleet of discs. Often there is nine of them flying in formation, and someone makes the point. Uh, that it seemed almost like a deliberate show of force from these crafts. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, we went to great lengths because, you know, the history of, the modern history of UFOs has has been kind of beaten to death. Um, But we went to great lengths to throw a new light, um, dig up never-before-seen archival footage, newsreel, interviews with well-known cases that, uh, that are incredibly rare. Uh, and that, that took quite an effort. Uh, we have people to thank, like uh, David Marler, Marler Archives in, in, in New Mexico, uh, Tom Tulian, um, my sister Kelly. I mean, we found stuff, we unearthed stuff that the world has never seen before. Um, because I, I really felt that it was important to not just show uh, a headline, but if you could 
show a headline and then hear from the actual witness, uh, that just really strengthens your strengthens your case. And um, you know, give an example. We we obviously feature the infamous Kenneth Arnold 1947 uh, UFO encounter, um, but we interview his daughter Kim Arnold, so we get sort of the inside scoop of the impact it had on the family, and she shared with us uh, correspondence between you know Kenneth and and the Air Force uh, photographs, originals that that she kept, that the family kept since 1947. Uh, that we feature in the film, um, you know that really cool sighting that happened with uh, United Airlines pilots William Nash and William Fortenberry, 1952, just before the White House and the Capitol building were buzzed in July. Um, really, really compelling eyewitness testimony. Very unambiguous encounters. That, yeah, that you know, inescapable conclusion that it was like a show of force, and that I think we even. We even titled that section of the film is exactly that, because that's what it looked like. It looked like someone flexing their muscles. His Kenneth Arnold's daughter also revealed something I didn't know, and that was that that in the aftermath of Kenneth's uh, Kenneth Arnold's sightings, that generated more press interest than than uh, the end of the Second World War. Yeah, no, he was very very famous. He actually ran for lieutenant governor of Idaho. I found your interview with Senator Harry Reid particularly riveting. There were a number of times when you asked him a deep and probing question, and he took a long pause, picked up a glass of water, took a long sip of water before answering your question. It was a great interview. Tell me about how you actually managed to land that interview. That was one of the bombshell moments of of the whole production, and there were a handful of those moments, believe me, but that was probably... If not number one, it, it's well probably number one. I, I gotta I gotta back up for a moment. Uh, that interview came about after months of negotiations. Uh, George Knapp was pulling strings behind the scenes. In fact, there were a couple people pulling strings behind the scenes, and it was a small window that opened, and we just managed to get that interview. And I was gobsmacked. I mean, you know, we mm-hmm. set up the whole scene because. He was like, okay, I'm going to have 53 minutes, you know, I'll arrive, we'll sit down, we'll do the interview, then I've got to go. And he showed up, he had a whole entourage, he had security detail, the guy looked like, you know, like I didn't get too close to Senator Reid without looking at him to make sure it was okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, this guy was looking at me like, don't even, you know. So I was concerned about pushing the envelope. I was concerned about going beyond his comfort level. Um, mm-hmm. I'd say it was about 35, 40 minutes into the interview. I knew I had about 10 more minutes. He was going pretty far. I was amazed at what he was revealing. And I decided, because I'd heard from people like David Fravor and George Knapp and a handful of others, that what was released on the front page of the New York Times, uh, evidence-wise, was just the tip of the iceberg. And so I decided to kind of breach that topic. And I... I was reminiscing, and I told him about an interview that I'd done with Gordon Cooper, Mercury astronaut Gordon Cooper, back in the 90s. And Gordon um, had shared with me a couple of instances, but one in particular was about this uh, this alleged landing at Edwards Air Force Base that his film crew had documented on camera of a flying saucer that landed on the dry lake bed in broad daylight 
uh, circa 1957 at Edwards Air Force Base. Uh, he had, he didn't he wasn't a witness, but he his his crew uh, brought him the film footage. He had it developed. He held it up to see if it was good footage. It was, um, and all the while he was in contact with the higher ups in Washington. Eventually, a courier jet came in to pick it up, and he handed the footage over. And I was telling this story uh, to Senator Reid, and just when I got to the point where I said yes, and he told me on camera that. He handed the footage over to this, you know, people that came in from Washington, and Senator Reid said, and it was never seen or heard from again. I went, exactly. And then he tried to change the topic. He was like, he was going somewhere else, and I was like, well, hold on. Uh, Senator, are, are you suggesting, are you saying that, you know, there's some evidence that hasn't seen the light of day? And it was like time had stopped. Honestly, wow. I wasn't sure if I'd pushed the limit, if I'd just gone beyond his comfort level. I really didn't know. And what seemed like several minutes, I'm sure it was just a moment, he picked up his water bottle, he took the okay. cap off, and he had a sip, and he put the cap back on, and he said, I'm saying that most of the evidence hasn't seen the light of day. And, uh, hmm. wow, that was a level of confirmation people in the field had suspected for a long time, but to have someone of his level, I mean, one of the second most powerful men in in the U.S., I mean, he was Senate Majority Leader, to confirm it was huge. With regards and to the, Coop, the, the Cooper footage, um, there's a, a piece in the, in the documentary, The Phenomenon, that, that where... They, we sort of found out what supposedly happened to that footage. Didn't Cooper speak to uh, or sit in on a cabinet meeting with um, Defense Secretary Cohen at the time? And, and yeah, uh, Cohen, really funny. Really yeah, funny. Tell us about because, that. Well, because when I met with, with our former Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, Christopher Reed, try saying that quickly ten times, um, in Washington, D.C., we were sort of you know talking while the camera crews were setting up. And lo and behold, you know, I was telling him about my meeting with Gordon Cooper, and he goes, oh, my gosh, really? You met with him? I said, yeah, I, I interviewed, interviewed him in the 90s, and he was telling me about his footage. He goes, you're kidding me. You got him on camera? I said, yeah, no, I did. He goes, well, he came into the White House, and he told the story to President Clinton when Clinton was kind of going after this stuff. And so I was put in charge of, in an official capacity to go after that landing footage. I said, you're kidding me. He goes, no, I was doing it in the 90s. I said, shoot, right around the same time I was interviewing Gordon Cooper, you were, you know. And uh, he said that eventually he got in, in touch with a high-level uh, Air Force guy who basically said, uh, oh, we had to clean up, you know, we had to make space and, you know, throw all that stuff out. Of course, Chris had a totally incredulous look on his face like, yeah, right, you're going to throw away landing footage of a flying saucer at Edwards Air Force Base, like, yeah, sure. But yeah, they they, did, they were not successful in getting their hands on that. But apparently it's there. It's still there. Wow. Yeah, that's what, uh, that's what uh, Senator Reid, oh yeah, Senator Reid said, yeah, that stuff's all there. It's there. I mean, look, you said the tip of the iceberg. I mean, the tip of the iceberg. What you've seen is just the tip of the iceberg. So I, we have a call, call to action at the end of the movie because you know, you can't 
explain away this phenomenon as swamp gas and weather balloons and misidentified aircraft to an educated population. And that's what I really hope this film will do, because it's going to be much more difficult for them to uh, provide a nonsense explanation or say, you know, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have this stuff, which we'll just know that it's not the case. More of my conversation with director James Fox when Conspiracy Unlimited returns. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. C60 Evo delivers the miracle molecule, ESS60. It's pure carbon 60. Why not love your body and share C60 Evo with those you love? ESS60 from C60 Evo is a mega antioxidant for increased strength, endurance, flexibility, and a deeper sleep. It's great for pets too. I take a tablespoon every day and so does the mighty Aphrodite. We're both sleeping better than we have in years. And during the day, we have such tremendous energy and vitality. We're both pain-free. In a landmark peer-reviewed animal study in Paris, France, rats fed ESS60 lived twice their normal lifespan. Go to c60evo.com slash Richard hyphen or click on the C60Evo link in the episode notes. Use the code EVRS at checkout and save 10%. ESS60 from C60Evo. Order your miracle in a bottle today. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No. Me either. But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Welcome back. James Fox stays with us. The Phenomenon is his latest documentary, and you can go to thephenomenonfilm.com, thephenomenonfilm.com. And there are a number of ways uh, to view it. But if you go, at, go through uh, iTunes uh, or Vimeo, there's uh, some um, bonus material there that you'll, you'll get as well. James, how far down the road do you think before mainstream science really starts to take the UFO issue seriously? Well, you know, having witnessed what Gary Nolan and Jacques Vallée are doing in a lab in Silicon Valley um, and that they are waiting to make any more concrete uh, announcements or analysis prior to peer review and being published in a, a scientific journal, I think to me is very exciting because that's exactly what they're, they're pushing for is for the you know, scientific community to take a closer look at the phenomenon. And um, I think it's very exciting what's happening. And, and also, you know, I'm seeing uh, just the other night I, I got... Uh, I got a call from Scotland, and there was an astronomer and a physicist that wanted to see if it was okay if, if they played the film at at a school and uh, at a conference. 
uh, which I thought was rather encouraging that, you know, you had sort of these mainstream scientists that normally poo-poo stuff on this phenomenon asking if they could use this, this film as an educational tool to, to bring on more, more scientists in the field. So that was very encouraging. I, I really think that, that we are rapidly approaching a tipping point with this. And I think people like, you know, Lou Elizondo and Christopher Mellon and Harry Reid, uh, the New York Times, and, and a handful of others have, have made a, a huge, made a lot of progress and made a huge difference in the last couple of years. Uh, James, you, you, you mentioned Valet's work with Nolan in Silicon Valley, and uh, this has to do with uh, exotic materials that Valet has collected over the years, reportedly from UFO crash sites. They're, they're analyzing this stuff. At, the, at an atomic level. Uh, can you share a few, a few of their findings? So I'm not a scientist, but uh, yes, um, they are cautious in what they will say publicly, but preliminary results indicate material that was engineered, uh, engineered at an atomic level, engineered in a way that would be nearly impossible by what they could tell, um, and that uh, before they make any more concrete statements, they're going to have the analysis published in a scientific journal and, and, uh, and get peer review. But it's very, very exciting, let's put it that way. I'd like to get you to talk about the nuclear issue. UFOs have been hovering over nuclear missile sites for many, many years, turning things off, turning things on. You cover this aspect of the UFO issue in the film quite extensively. So um, I was probably about six years into production, maybe six and a half. And a very good friend, a co-editor, this guy Lance Mungia, and uh, he said to me, James, all these reports and these landings and the stuff at, 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 at Holloman, White Sands, and Coro, and Texas, you know, we should get a map and we should put a little pin in these different locations and just kind of take a look at what's going on here. And I thought, you know, that's a good idea. So we did. And what I started to see was that the proximity to the Trinity site, which is the first detonation of the atomic bomb back in 1945, to all these sightings. I mean, literally, they were, like, all around the area. And I just, you know, I was just kind of shocked. Like, wow, there's got to be a correlation here. Well, at right around the same time, I managed to get that interview, as I was, we were talking about earlier, with Senator Harry Reid. And we did the whole interview, with 47 minutes into it, and I said, uh, Senator, and I knew he was on a very ri rigorous schedule. I knew we only had a couple more minutes. And I really wanted to get a shot of him and I walking and talking for B-roll that I just might need. So uh, I asked him, I said, Senator, would you mind before you leave, I would just get a really quick, you know, shot of us walking and talking. And uh, he, he knew what, you know, what I needed to do. He said, well, sure, let's do it. I looked over to the... Uh, the photographer, and I said, look, don't worry about it. We don't have time to get lighting. and It is what it is. Just get a couple quick shots. So I figured while I was walking with him, I might as well take advantage of my time. And I asked him, Senator, um, thank God I asked him this question. I don't know why I didn't ask it when we were sitting down. 
but I didn't. I said, Senator, what was one of the more astonishing aspects that you guys uncovered uh, as part of the ATIP pro- program, the uh, Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, uh, at the Pentagon for that 10-year period? And he sort of paused, and he looked at me, and he said, the fact that they're, sh- they're interacting with our nuclear weapons. And then he said, he went as far as saying that there were a couple of cases he knew about that if the President of the United States wanted to launch, they couldn't have done it. These things were just not only making incursions over these super-sensitive nuclear weapons facilities, but they were shutting these things off. And I knew right then and there, okay, i got to address this. I, I kind of had an inkling. I had heard about it before. I mean, I covered a little bit about this. The Vandenberg Air Force Base case that Jacobs had witnessed back in the 60s. Um, but I, I never really took a real good look at it, so I reached out to Robert Hastings because he's the guy. James, you mentioned the the, the nuclear sites that were taken offline, pl- places like uh, Ellsworth Air Force Base and Minot Air Force Base, um, Malmstrom in 1967. As it turns out, on the other side uh, of the Cold War, uh, you had this. You had something similar happening, uh, except in this case, in one case in particular in in Ukraine at an air uh, at a nu- nuclear base they were these UFOs were uh, launching the uh, or that the signal was being triggered so they were turning them off in the United States and seemingly turning them on in Ukraine yeah I'm sorry I was long-winded on the last explanation because I kind of wanted your audience to hear the the evolution of my thought process on on this topic because I wouldn't have probably highlighted it had it not been for a the map during documenting some of these sightings back in the 50s and 60s and even flyovers in the 40s but but my meeting with with uh senator harry reed and then of course um robert hastings ufos and nukes made all of his uh lifelong investigations decades after decade uh, available to us for the film so we put together a very poignant eight to ten minute section of testimony uh, of people claiming that uh, first-hand eyewitness accounts of these UFOs not only being seen, picked up on radar, but turning, in most cases, turning the UFOs off, but in some cases, both in the U.S. and in Russia, thank we know about this thanks to uh, the research that George Knapp has done in, the 90, in 1993. Um, yeah, it's just crazy because, you know, Robert Salas, who's the launch control officer, Colonel in the United States Air Force, I'll never forget what he said to me. He was like, well, what does it tell you? To me, it's like taking hands out of the match, uh, taking matches out of the hands of a baby. I get the feeling that after spending eight years making this documentary, it's taken quite a toll on you physically and perhaps mentally. How could it not? I don't want to sound melodramatic, but felt like I, I honestly felt like I was going to die about seven years into it, maybe six and a half. I was pushed so hard. The The best way I can describe it, it's like being in the ring with a monster and you're just trying to survive the next round. And it's it's relentless because you can't punch out the clock and go home. It stays with you 24-7 for nearly eight years. And there were so many hurdles. Just doing a documentary is hard enough. But if mm-hmm. I told your audience the hurdles that I encountered along the way, we'd be here for nine hours. I get the feeling that after spending eight years making this documentary, it's taken quite a toll on you physically and perhaps mentally. How could it not? You've got 
everything from disgruntled partners running out of money, people trying to stop the production for whatever their motivations are, uh, litigation. Uh, I think I mentioned <laughs> the financial side. Mm-hmm. Um, just getting people to go on camera. I mean, I, look, I could write a book on what it took just to get the uh, the Rua section of this film, which is only, what, under 10 minutes together? That took five years. Not just editing, but, you know, negotiations and raising the funds and flying in the witnesses, working with people like Randall Nickerson, working with uh, executive producers, trying to coordinate all the schedules, um, dealing with the John Mack Institute. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. I mean, I spent five years getting to know Socorro, New Mexico. I I got to know Lonnie's family. I got to know his daughter, Diane, his wife, Mary, his son, Michael. I got to know his coworkers, the local police officer. I mean, I was in, in and out of that town for five years. In fact, I went, I went even bought a, a, their truck, their family truck, which I have now and kept back in California. Um, it just took a lot of time. I mean, I spent a week with uh, Ray Stanford. He wrote the book, uh, 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 Flying uh, Saucer and Pentagon Pantry. Uh, anyway, he wrote the definitive book on the topic of support in Mexico. I mean, there's just a story, there's a backstory with every case, and it was just a monumental task uh, to get this film done. And, and and look, it's my fourth attempt to create a body of evidence that could be presented to mainstream, um, because I feel like this is a topic that. There's enough credible information that every man, woman, and child should have the right to know about. And, and putting that together in a digestible, palatable way is incredibly challenging. And just making a documentary is incredibly challenging, but then trying to make a documentary on a topic, you know, that's been shunned by the scientific community and the mainstream media for 75 years. I mean, you know, it's yeah. incredibly difficult. And so, you know, I would, I wouldn't wish, I wish, wouldn't wish what I went through upon my worst enemy. I don't want to say that like it was. I didn't have fun as well, but it was incredibly difficult, incredibly difficult. Oh yeah, my God! Yeah. Well, listen, I'm really glad. I'm really happy. It's one of the first times that I finished a film, and I patted myself on the back and said, "I like this one. I'm, I'm happy." Wow. This. Wow. The manifestation of this is how I envisioned it wanting to be from concept to completion. Do you know what I mean? And any plans to get this into the hands of uh, elected officials? Oh, that's already going on big time. Oh, yeah, there's a lot. There's so much going on behind the scenes right now. You guys, it's unbelievable. I mean, look, Lou Elizondo publicly endorsed this. He was head of, he was director of the program for ATEP at the Pentagon. Um, Christopher Mellon, I mean, they're using it as an educational tool. Senator Harry Reid, I mean, everybody's endorsing it publicly and they're spreading the word like crazy. Absolutely. This is, this is not going to be a flash in the pan, like, you know, this is a marathon that we're running right now. This is just, as, as Senator Reid said, the tip of the iceberg. And it's this, you know, with disclosure, it's like you've been, people have been, 
kicking in the door, kicking in the door, and it seems like it's just I get the sense it, hanging by a few splinters. What what are those splinters? What's what's the main obstacle re- that remains in your mind? I think that from people that I've talked to uh, that are in a position to sort of do a lot more, uh, it's one of the reasons why we put a call to action at the end of the movie. You know, representatives need to hear from their constituents. They need to hear that, hey, the water's okay, we're not going to castigate you for putting your neck out on a topic that's generally not considered worthy of serious investigation. Uh, I think that's changing. And I think that the more we, the people, reach out to our representatives and say, hey, we want to know more, we know there's a lot more going on behind the scenes, we want to push for transparency, I mean, ultimately, I'd like to see congressional hearings. I think that would that would certainly do it. Um, Christopher Mellon said that there's supposed to be uh, an evaluation, a report that's supposed to be made published, public um, about uh, an assessment, really, as to what's going on. That's due at any moment. And I know that Mr. Mellon is, is working hard behind the scenes and, and getting that out. So I'm very, very optimistic, more so than I've ever been times a hundred, times a thousand, quite honestly. So um, I think we're, I really believe that we are at a tipping point. I don't see it going backwards. I see us going forwards. James, congratulations on the phenomenon, thephenomenonfilm.com, and um, we appreciate you, you dropping by and spending some time with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back in a few moments to tell you a little bit about an upcoming episode. Did you know you can now stream episodes of this podcast on your mobile device? All you need is my new Conspiracy Unlimited app. It's absolutely free, and it's available for both iOS and Android devices. If you're a Conspiracy Unlimited Plus member, pay attention. You can now stream premium content from your mobile device. My free Conspiracy Unlimited app for iOS and Android. Available from the App Store and Google Play. Get yours today and start streaming Conspiracy Unlimited on your mobile device. Coming up next time, author Micah Dank from the Into the Rabbit Hole series returns with part two of our two-part conversation on MK Ultra. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. 
Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. <laughs>